I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about what's happening in Ukraine on the missile front, we have with us the missile man, Tom Carrico of CSIS, who's the head of our missile defense project and who knows everything there is to know about missiles. Tom, in the last day or so, we've become aware that Iranian drones and Iranian missiles may have entered the theater. Can you tell us what's going on in Ukraine and how Iran's involvement may change the shape of the conflict? Yeah, so there's a handful of things going on. One, Russia has obviously been accelerating the the pace and the number of drone and uh, missile strikes broadly across Ukraine, kind of lashing out a little bit in terms of uh, response to the Ukrainian counteroffensive in the in the east. But there's also this uh, wrinkle that they apparently have been drawing upon some Iranian-made drones and potentially also some Iranian-made missiles. And so what you're seeing here is, I would say, a very peculiar axis of evil developing here in terms of Russia, I think Estonian parliament, Ukrainian parliament has built a terrorist state and uh, the world's number one sponsor of terrorism. And so this does change the dynamic, I think, potentially in a couple of ways. It's not that uh, everybody else in the world hadn't already identified who the aggressor was. But nevertheless, there's some other actors that may get involved here, given the Ukrainian involvement. I will say as well that the reports that uh, Russia has been expending large numbers of their missiles and their drones. There was a New York Times story some months ago about the, the Russians apparently getting North Korean artillery to use there as well, or at least artillery from North Korea. So look, they're, they're using up a lot of stuff. Uh, and so this is a, it's a battle of time and it's a battle of munition stores as, as much as anything. And basically, does this tell us that Russia is running out of missiles, running out of drones? And so they need to rely on the few allies that they have in the world? It could. I'm a little cautious about concluding that in the absence of real evidence. Russia does put a significant uh, premium on their artillery and their rocket forces. And so one has to assume that they have had significant numbers. And so I don't want to assume that they are out for whatever reason. They may be keeping other things in reserve. Well, I guess also, does is it give us an indication that maybe the industrial sanctions against Russia are really working and that they need to go to other countries that have weapons industry to, to restock? Sure. I, I think potentially that's a, a very important angle here. Uh, I would expect the sanctions to really be more of a longer-term effect. In the six-month window of time, yeah, you may be producing some small number, but you're expending orders and orders of magnitude more. I mean, just on the, on the Ukrainian side, I mean, the, something like you know, seven, ten years of artillery production, I think, has been used up so far. So you're always going to expend them faster than you can produce them. So sustaining those sanctions, I think, is going to be really important for the longer-term punishment and the longer-term effects on the Russian defense industrial enterprise. Now, it's been reported that Iran's promised to provide Russia with surface-to-surface -surface missiles that could have a range of, you know, over 300 kilometers. Two senior Iranian officials and two Iranian diplomats have told reporters that the move is really likely to infuriate the United States and other Western powers, but they don't really care. You know, what do you make of all that? Yeah. 
You know, I think the particular missiles that uh, have been reported, I think it's the Zulfagar, maybe the Fatah missiles, could be that they're getting rid of old stocks. There's a lot of that going on. In fact, there's a lot of that going on in Eastern and Central Europe. You know, uses as an opportunity to get rid of your really old kit with the promise that the, the warehouses will be refilled with newer and American-made things. So there could be that. But look, I think Iran is also looking for an opportunity to <laughs> stick it to some of the West that they've also been the source of quite a few sanctions over the years. I am amused a bit by the reports. I think somebody in the White House or somewhere said that, well, we're going to sanction the Iranians for this. I mean, I don't know what, what in Iran that is moving uh, is left to sanction, but sure, go ahead. The sanctions that exist already are very intense. Anytime you talk about Iran and missiles and entering into you know, a theater such as this, you have to start to think, okay, what is Israel's concern? What is the United States' concern? What are you hearing about Israel in this equation? Yeah, I think you're right. Israel, the United States, and other partners in the Gulf think UAE and uh, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is kind of playing a multi-dimensional game here, sending some aid to Ukraine, but also you know cutting uh, energy production, uh, which helps raise the price and therefore helps Russia. And the Saudis and the Emiratis and other folks in the Gulf area, they're just as concerned or about Iran as, as anybody. And so, yeah, this has the potential to kind of go sideways in different ways. Keep an eye on that. And then in terms of Israel specifically, I don't think a week goes by without some kind of threat to Israel's existence. And so you, you have to assume that they are very keyed up on this. They've said that. I can imagine intelligence sharing about Iranian uh, drone and missile capabilities at the very least certainly would seem to be a good opportunity for target practice against Iranian drones and missiles uh, should the Israelis or other folks uh, decide to go there. It's also an intelligence bonanza, right? There's going to be a lot of people who are scrutinizing and watching the thermal and aerodynamic signatures of these things so as to prepare for the future. Tom, when it comes to Israel and the United States, too, in defense, we often think of Iron Dome, which, of course, protects Israel. I would imagine the Ukrainians really could use Iron Dome, would want Iron Dome. It's not as easy as just waving a wand and making it happen, of course. But in your view, what's the likelihood that the Ukrainians may get something akin to Iron Dome in the near future or, you know, if this conflict, God forbid, drags on for a long time? Before I get to that specifically, I want to just, first of all, note that the Biden administration and a number of European capitals have been looking at this. I think it was uh, Secretary Austin over in uh, Europe the other day. And on a broad basis, they're talking about, hey, we need more air defense across the board. And Iron Dome, the NASAM system that the United States is sending over there, a couple batteries of it because we don't have a lot. The Ukrainians want every piece of air defense that they can possibly get their hands on. And they're begging anybody who has anything lying around to send it over, even if it's not, you know, perfectly optimized for this set uh, or the other. And so whether it be French air defenses, German, U.S., other folks in, in Europe, they want anything they can get their hands on. They have uh, a Slovakian S-300. That's basically Slovakia's national air defense that got sent over early on. And of course, uh, reports of a, uh, an S-300 that the U.S. was hiding in Huntsville, Alabama, has apparently also made its way over there. In terms of the Israel, you know, look, they make some very capable air and missile defense systems. They have that reputation for a reason, and they are, you know, good at keeping the cost down. In, the, in that respect, 
prioritizing capacity and proliferation of these defenses over the super high end that gets in the way of, of building a lot of them. And so Iron Dome has that reputation, understandably. President Zelensky has asked Israel many times specifically to send some of this stuff over. And in fact, I think just recently this week, uh, they sent uh, a letter to the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs in, in Israel, again, asking for it. I think it would be tremendous uh, if Israel either decided to do that or at least at minimum decided that maybe they shouldn't be blocking other third parties who have acquired Iron Dome or acquired other capable Israeli uh, systems from sending them on. Israel's in a tough neighborhood. They've got to, of course, steward their resources just as we steward our patriots, and we're not going to be sending those over. So it's understandable that they want to retain them. But at the same time, they're not really supplying any military aid whatsoever. The United States Army has two Iron Dome batteries. I think they're sitting on Guam right now. I think it might be a very nice thing to do for multiple reasons if the United States were to transfer those to Ukraine. Unfortunately, according to public reports, these, the Israelis have blocked uh, that as well. That's unfortunate. The involvement of the Iranians now really makes that a peculiar posture to be taking. It really has much more to do, I think, with geopolitical alignment of Israel and Russia in terms of their particular neighborhood in the Middle East. It's a policy decision, in other words, that Israel's making. It's not about the number of rounds, as it were. Right. Israel's got a fine line to walk and certainly needs to protect its own security. Tom, if we back up a little bit and talk about the missile strikes that have been occurring, the Russian troops have been targeting civilians. Give me a sense of what the last few weeks have looked like with Russia launching these missiles towards civilians. Yeah, I'll just say my colleague Ian Williams had a piece he just put out the other day uh, kind of summarizing what's been going on. Uh, and I'll just say in brief, uh, look, they're expending a lot, a lot of these things either for targeting problems or for a uh, tactic of just terrorizing the population. They're going after energy, power, these kinds of economic targets, as well as just civilian infrastructure and human casualties as well. It's frankly some of the, the targeting that we would have expected and, and did expect in the opening days of the conflict. They're kind of coming back and, and doing some of that. The other interesting thing of what's going on, though, is that a lot of it's not getting through. On the drone side, uh, I was on a panel recently where one scholar talked about a, you know, 90% of the drones are intercepted and they have a life expectancy of about three flights. So counter UAS is very real. It's a big deal of what's going on there. We see a lot of these videos, you know, dropping on the, the Russians. A lot of stuff's getting shot down, Ukrainian as well as, uh, as Russian side. Likewise, on the cruise missile side, there's been a fair number of videos out there, including one of a lucky shot of, a, I think it was a, a man pads or maybe a stinger, maybe something else, uh, taking out a cruise missile. Look, cruise missiles, these, they're subsonic, a variety anyway. These can be defeated. It's not a super high-end capability problem. It's more of a capacity problem and being in the right place at the right time. This is a, you know, the Homeland Cruise Missile Defense. We put out a report on that uh, this summer. It's a hard problem, but it's a different kind of problem than the super wickedly complicated, whiz-bangy, uh, ballistic missile defense kind of thing. And what's more important for the Ukrainians right now, drones or missiles, or is it really a combination of that? It's both. Uh, the drones are probably cheaper and easier to, to use, especially for the ISR. So it's not just about the delivery of ordnance, but it's in very large part using these, these drones for figuring out where troops are or whatever is in a place to decide whether or not you want to strike it. Tom, the United States and have provided quite a bit to Ukraine. Some say not enough. Where do you think that sits right now? Well, look, I'll say if the Iranians are indeed going to be start supplying some... Uh, 
what are essentially short-range ballistic missiles, uh, I think that does open up the question of whether the United States or, frankly, other powers could supply Ukraine with ATACMs, the longer-range munition for the uh, for the high Mars launcher, or something else. I mean, look, there's other countries in the world that have short-range ballistic missiles, be it Turkey, be it Saudi Arabia, be it South Korea. There's a lot of things that could be brought to bear here if they so desired. Now, having said that, we also have short stocks, and we do need to steward our resources, uh, including for the uh, deterrence of China. And so this is going to be a big challenge, is what are the really, really hard decisions? What do we say no to on these things? The Biden administration, Tony Blinken, a day or two ago, said that he thinks China is on an accelerated timeline to take over Taiwan. If that's going to happen, then we and our Asia-Pacific allies, for instance, need to be really focused on that uh, above all. And so it's going to be a challenge. This is why the production of munitions is so absolutely critical right now, not because they're going to come off the line in a couple of weeks from now, rather so that we can have ample supply to deter that conflict some years from now. So, you know, it seems like Ukraine needs everything yesterday. But what is the real time frame? When does it become a really dire situation from them if they don't continue to get these important assets? Well, it is a dire situation right now, of course. And, you know, it's only one lucky shot by the Russians to take out political leadership or something like that. This thing could easily and quickly go in a different direction than the, the recent successes by the Ukrainians would suggest otherwise. So it's really hard to predict that sort of thing. But uh, winter is coming. There may be a little bit of a slowdown in terms of the, the conflict, but it, presumably it'll be there when the spring comes around next year. Tom, you've talked about NASAMs. The Pentagon stated that it's sending two mobile air defense systems known as NASAMs to Ukraine. What are those and what do they do? Yeah, so this is actually a Norwegian-developed air defense system that the United States has, that a handful of countries have. It's a launcher that employs the AMRAAM missile. That's an air-to-air -air missile. We, the Brits, and lots of other folks have those, uh, but it can also be shot from the ground. Uh, this is a relatively more capable system. It's good for the cruise missile problem, for instance, and the Brits are actually sending over some some AMRAAMs to help uh, supply these, these NASAMs launchers that we're, we're doing. The challenge, of course, is I think we're only sending two of them. Again, it's back to capacity. Ukraine is a big country. That means that they're going to be vulnerable in many, many places. The defended area of these things is quite limited. And so, again, it's about capacity. Going forward, what can we expect to see from Russia in terms of cruise and ballistic missile launches? We'll certainly be on the lookout for more of the same, whether it be the the Iskanders that they've been doing over these months, the uh, the Calibers and the KH-101s, um, cruise missiles. And then if they get these Iranian stores or perhaps North Korean, that's potential as well. At some point, though, they're going to run out, like you say. And so then it may just become a protracted land battle again. But that, frankly, is where the fires on the Ukrainian side are going to be so important. After the Stinger and the Javelin, perhaps, the biggest star of the conflict is the HIMARS and the multiple launch rocket systems, the MLRS, that have been just wreaking devastating havoc uh, on the Russians. So maintaining that, maintaining the munition supplies so they can continue to do that, I think is going to be absolutely critical. Well, Tom, thank you very much for all this insight. We really appreciate it. All right, Andrew, great to see you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, 
China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 